From KCRW, this is Greater L.A. I'm Steve Chitakis with a show that connects you to the people and places of Southern California. North of Los Angeles in the Central Valley, where tons and tons of food is grown and raised, dozens of men are on a hunger strike. They're not farm workers in the field. They're migrants detained at two Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, facilities, privately run by a corporation called Geo Group. One of them is in Bakersfield, the other in McFarland nearby. It just seems to be boiling up, and basically our, 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 our basic needs, you know, are not being met by met by, by Geo, and so we're requesting ICE to, to release us, you know. That's one of the hunger strikers, Oscar Rodriguez Picasso. Detainees who work at those facilities are paid at least a dollar a day for eight-hour shifts, scrubbing bathrooms, doing laundry, working as barbers, etc., etc. Farida Javala Romero is labor correspondent for KQED up in San Francisco and reported on the strike and is with us right now. Farida, welcome to you. Um, thank you. Hi. Why are these detainees on a hunger strike? How, how did we get here? So the hunger strike is an escalation of an ongoing labor strike by dozens of detainees at the two facilities that started about 10 months ago. You mentioned one of the main issues they were protesting, uh, the $1 a day they're paid to work doing sort of maintenance tasks in the, in the facility. Um, they were also protesting what they said was expired food they were being served served and sold uh, at the commissary. Uh, they were protesting substandard medical care, mistreatment by detention staffers, and overpriced commissary items, including basic things like toothpaste or dental floss, shampoo, that detainees say push them to uh, have to work for the low wages. And now some of those same detainees uh, waging the labor strike began refusing all meals since uh, morning, the morning of Friday, February 17th. Uh, it was more than 75 people who started the hunger strike. 42 detainees were on hunger strike as of this morning. Many have had to quit because of medical problems. At least one detainee has been taken to the hospital with numbness in his hands, stomach, pain, dizziness. And that's according to organizers with a nonprofit called Pangea Legal Services, which is tracking the, the hunger strike. And something that is really important to point out here is that immigration detention is for ICE to make sure uh, people show up to their immigration proceedings. And this detention is legally classified as civil, not criminal, and so it should not be punitive. But in reality, detainees are often locked up in facilities that they say operate just like prisons and jails. Yeah, these are these are privately run facilities. Again, this example by Geo Group, um, overseen, though, by the ICE office in San Francisco, five of the strikers have now sued ICE. What did their lawyer have to say about why they're choosing to sue? They accused Geo and ICE of retaliating, basically punishing detainees to try to get them to quit the hunger strike. The five plaintiffs and their lawyers argue that you know, this is a peaceful demonstration that is protected by their First Amendment right of, of free speech, which protects everyone in the country, regardless of immigration status. I spoke with Bree Bernwenger. She's the senior attorney with the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights in the Bay Area. Depriving people of the only two hours a day that they get to spend in fresh air and sunlight. I mean, depriving people of family visits 
ICE and GEO have deprived them of necessary hygiene items. They've deprived them of access to the law library, which they need to pursue their immigration cases. There's no explanation for this other than punishing them for speaking out. The lawsuit also accuses GEO and and ICE of turning the temperature in the dormitories uh, to really low, you know, to uncomfortably cold, of leaving food for long periods of times on detainee beds to try to tempt them to start eating, and of threatening to put detainees in solitary confinement. All right. Explain this to me, because is this is this forced labor? Do they choose to do the work for this this low pay? I mean, how how does it work? It's what ICE calls a volunteer work program. And in the standards, uh, you know, for the agency that detention facilities are supposed to follow, it says detainees who volunteer to work should be paid at least one dollar a day. Um, And it's actually Congress that can raise that rate, but they haven't done so since the 1970s. So people in detention centers nationwide have been working for these really low wages with the blessing of ICE and Congress. Uh, But there are lawsuits challenging, uh, challenging that, including from detainees at Mesa Verde and Golden State here in California. And one of the main arguments is that immigration detention is, you know, like we said, not supposed to be criminal punishment and that operators like GEO are engaging in wage theft by not following California's minimum wage, which is now $15.50 an hour. That labor program is something that benefits the company which is a huge multinational prison company that, you know, made about $2 billion last year in revenues because they're saving on labor costs uh, by using this cheap detainee workforce to maintain their facilities. And one of the main questions the courts are going to have to deal with is whether a federal contractor like GEO has to follow the state's minimum wage for this work for uh, for people in detention. We should note, Farida, that... California passed a law, the legislature passed a law in 2019 to get rid of these privately run facilities, right? Privately run prisons and detention facilities. And a federal court overruled that back in September. So these continue to operate. What is the government and and this company, Geo Group, saying about the hunger strike? What is their response to all of this? ICE uh, says they fully respect the rights of people to voice their opinion without interference, uh, that the agency does not retaliate in any way against hunger strikers, and that ICE is committed to ensuring the welfare of people in their custody. Um, they they do have guidelines uh, for hunger strikes as well. Uh, medical personnel is supposed to monitor them frequently and um and that's something we know that has been happening at, you know, at these two detention centers with, with this current hunger strike. Uh, the GEO group, a spokesman repeatedly denied there was even a labor strike, you know, the one we were talking about before. Uh, the company also denies all the allegations of substandard detention conditions and, and any allegations of retaliation. But, you know, I have to tell you the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, 
analyze hundreds of hunger strikes in ICE detention. I think it was between 2013 and 2017. And they unfortunately found a lot of abuse and retaliation from ICE and detention staff, including the use of solitary confinement and involuntary medical procedures like force feeding detainees in some cases. Uh, And one of the authors for that report, um, she told me recently ICE has not significantly improved its treatment of hunger strikers. I mean, there was the one in Adelanto, right, near closer to L.A., at the height of COVID, and and there the strikers claimed that the facility didn't do enough to keep them safe from the virus, so they 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 struck then as well. You know, at Mesa Verde and Golden State, detainees um, have told me they've tried many other ways to try to improve detention conditions, including filing formal complaints with ICE and GEO and with other um, agencies like the Department of Homeland Security Civil Rights and Civil Liberties Office. Um, They've tried uh, the labor strike. uh, And this hunger strike is sort of a last resort for detainees, you know, who are really you're really putting your health at risk when you don't eat for several days or, or weeks, which is becoming the situation here. Thanks so much for for your reporting. Farida Javala Romero, labor correspondent for KQED, keeping us updated down here in L.A. as well. We do appreciate it. Thank you. Well, the pay rate at those ICE facilities starts at a dollar per day. In the rest of California, $15.50 is the minimum wage per hour. It's one of the highest in the nation. But in pricey L.A., it's just not enough to live on, not even close in most places, And that question, what's enough to live on, is behind a new bill put forward by a newly minted state senator. The bill requires the state to calculate the living wage in each of California's counties. In other words, how much you need to earn to pay for your basic needs. The bill is SB 352. The state senator is Steve Padilla, who hails from Chula Vista, and he represents a huge area that includes parts of San Diego, Imperial, Riverside, and San Bernardino counties. And the state senator is with us right now. Hello. Hi, thanks for having me. You bet. Um, California, as you know, has one of the highest minimum wages in the country and, according to some measures, one of the highest poverty rates in the nation. So how does that work? How do those things jibe? And, and why doesn't that higher pay translate to a better quality of life for Californians? Well, it simply isn't sufficient, and certainly there's been some great uh, progress and great work done in the state uh, to have some of the more uh, generous and progressive, I guess that's the word you could use, uh, social safety net programs and a higher minimum wage. But the reality is, is California is slowly uh, becoming a state where there are two separate economies operating under our feet. And there's a whole segment of the California workforce that is becoming very economically stranded. They're at the entry level of our workforce. You know, they're lower wage earners, they're minimum wage earners. And what we see in that category uh, of our overall workforce is that they're working more and more hours. Some folks uh, working upwards of, you know, two jobs, 80, 90 hours a week. And according to a number of um, advocacy group studies, mostly national studies, but some focused on California, uh, even working 80, 90 hours a week is not enough to allow you to even rent a, a one or two bedroom apartment. Uh, anywhere near where you work. And uh, my point in putting this bill forward is uh, the state, I think, needs to get its arms around what a real, what I call a living housing wage looks like in the state in real time 
something that uh, provides an actual methodology, an actual formula to calculate what that is, both by region and as a statewide average, and report that out annually to the, the state legislature. What was really interesting, going back to the early 20th century when California first established a minimum wage, there was no baseline for it. There was no methodology to it, no rhyme or reason, as we say. There was no formula. This is, this is what you link it to, or this is how you arrive at what it should be. They just simply said that it should be something that guarantees people, uh, I think the terminology was something akin to a proper living. <laughs> well, clearly, when we have workers in California working 80, 90 hours a week, and they can't afford to put a roof over their head, something is really wrong, and, and I think we need to compile that data. The state needs to compile that data and report it out to the state legislature annually in real time so that we can have a good set of data to work from to hopefully try to advance some good policies to address what poverty really looks like in California. Well, this isn't this isn't a minimum wage increase, right? That's not what this is. This, this is, is not. A, this is not what this is. Right. This is just trying to calculate what it is and what it would take for you to live comfortably or to live at least to live in California. Exactly right. And I think you have a real powerful tool potentially to start to maybe make some intelligent pol you know, policy moves that can address that. For example, maybe we look at some of the qualifying threshold standards for some of our social safety net programs. And maybe instead of being a national standard that included places like Kansas uh, or Alabama, it's specific to California linked to a housing wage. Maybe there are ways to work with very large-scale employers, for example, uh, to provide some incentives for employers who have the scale and the size of the workforce that they could guarantee that everyone in their workforce would be paid a housing wage instead of just the minimum wage, uh, and they move a lot more of their workforce into housing near where they live. Conservatives are going to tell you that this is a business killer. That's, that's what they will say. Um, and I wonder what kind of reception that you've gotten in, in Sacramento, too. Well, I don't, I, Which, I by don't the way, think, is your first bill, right? This is your, your first bill it, as a state senator, is. right? It, it is. And here's my argument. I, you know, nobody should be afraid of information. Knowledge is power for everyone. And my bill does not uh, require an increase in the minimum wage or set a new minimum wage standard. My bill for the first time says you need to have a methodology as to how you arrive at this and you need to have it be a meaningful number every year so you at least know what that looks like in this state. That can be a powerful tool to have a broad conversation about things that can and should be done to, to address people in this predicament. It's a permanent underclass. It's a separate economy. California's beginning to have two economies, one for those who can participate in it and those just tough luck. And that shouldn't be acceptable to anyone in California. Do you think something like this helps bring people back to California? The state's lost, what, five, six, seven hundred thousand people just in the past, according to census figures, just in the past couple of years. And just anecdotally, last week, we, as a radio station, we asked folks who had left Los Angeles why they moved out of the city or moved out of the state of California. And the vast majority said, because they simply couldn't afford it. It's too expensive. Right. Now, what do we lose when, when a state loses population? You know, people migrate and move all the time for individual reasons that, you know, aren't necessarily part of a trend. But, you know, with all of the great attributes and assets that the state has and could have, and it's a very desirable place to live, you know, when you start losing people because they're working really hard, but they can't live here, something's fundamentally wrong. And I think as a state that we need to get our arms around that. And that's the purpose of SB 352. You're going to have to do some coalition building. Obviously, it's easier in California for a Democrat to do that 
in its state capital than, as you mentioned, Alabama or some other state where a Democrat would have absolutely no chance of getting something Mm -hmm. like this done. How do you do that coalition building? Hard work and communication. I mean, if you think about it, everyone should be concerned about the situation as it is, including the business community, because we're losing workforce. We're losing folks that could have their skills develop, their education increase, their labor be more marketable. If only they weren't just working 90 hours a week and, and still treading water, right? We, we, we talk a good game about how important it is to develop our workforce, to educate people so they can move up in our economy, that their labor will be worth more. But when people are literally in a permanent underclass economy, no matter how hard they work, and now they work double time, they can't even meet their basic needs, how in the heck do we expect them to take advantage of those opportunities and those programs to lift themselves up? They can't. If the information you have in your district is of one set, right, there's one metric there, and the minimum right. wage in California in your district is 1550 is that enough? Well, it's clearly not enough, Right. It's clearly so not you think the minimum wage should be high I mean, in California? It should be high. I mean, I don't, I don't think there's any argument that the minimum wage today is insufficient. Uh, you know, uh, folks are having to work 80, 90 hours a week and still can barely afford to rent a one-bedroom apartment. Well, I want to thank you for coming on and talking to us, and congratulations on the first bill as a state senator. It's a big one um, going forward, and and I wonder, are you going to, I mean, is, is this what you're looking to do going forward, you know, as far as livability and and bills like that? I think a lot of my focus really, and I call it individual economic empowerment. I really want to think about how we can help folks and be partners with the business community included to to help develop our workforce in a way that keeps them competitive and marketable and that people who work hard can meet their basic needs and grow from there and prosper. That's the social contract. And it's not working for a bigger and bigger segment of our workforce in California. And we can do better than that. State Senator Steve Padilla, thanks so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to our radio show and podcast, Greater LA. You can join us online at any time at kcrw.com slash GLA. Still to come, spring is around the corner and so is high school prom season. How some foster and low-income kids are getting the fancy threads to be able to attend. That's yours after this. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. Moving on now with Greater LA from KCRW, I'm Steve Chiotakis. There are currently more than 30,000 kids in foster care in Los Angeles County. They face all kinds of challenges, many pretty obvious, from safe housing to safe schooling. And one challenge you might not think about when it comes to schooling, dressing for the prom. That's where one group is here to help. You know, my mother used to say, always look for the helpers. Anybody who is coming into a place where there's a tragedy.
because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. Glamour Gowns Suit Up is a group that helps kids have a chance at a normal school dance experience. They offer free, brand new clothing to thousands of boys and girls every year. We even feature them in a story right here on GLA. Sibony Sneer is the co-chair of Glamour Gowns, and she's here with us to tell us how things are going with the program this year. Sibony, welcome to you. Thank you. Remind us about the basics of Glamour Gowns. How, how did it start, and, and who does it serve? Is it just foster kids? It, well, we have developed, we have opened up enrollment to more than just foster youth, because as we all know, in the city of LA, the need is massive. So we also reach out to um, the underrepresented schools throughout LA Unified School District. If our numbers are still low, we will extend it out to even as far as Riverside, San Bernardino counties to get as many people in as possible to take benefit of all the wonderful free stuff that all of our donors contribute every single year. Well, let, let's talk about the process. You said donation. So how do you do that and who does that? Well, there is a team of eight of us that gift our volunteer time um, to do what feels like a full-time job sometimes. Um, so there are primarily three of us that go out. We um, ask for donations from dress events. It's really important to us that everything we gift to the youth are brand new because there's a different value associated to an item when it's new to them. So we have um, dress companies like Tadashi. We have dress companies uh, like Macy's has donated. Um, there are smaller bridesmaids companies, one that's Birdie Gray. They donate all of their um, excess inventory to us every year, but it requires us to beg, barter, and steal <laughs> um, all of their donations. Um, so you can often find us in downtown LA, our own cars on a Thursday, at these companies packing our cars with dresses that they call us and say, we need to get rid of these in the next two weeks. We figure out a day, we go, we pick them up, and then we hold them in storage until our event happens in March. Wow. And by the way, it's not just clothes, right? You guys take money, too, because yes. you got to keep the whole thing going, don't you? Absolutely. And part of that is we are very conscientious of um, size inclusivity. So we want to make sure that whether someone is a size 2 or a size 32, when they come, they feel the love, they feel the value. So oftentimes we, we do an inventory once a year closer to the event. We just did it two weeks ago. And then we take a look at what sizes we're missing and where we need to supplement. So any donation that's give, given to Glamour Gowns and Suit Up, we then go to downtown LA. We buy those sizes to make sure that everyone feels like there is something there for them. And those alterations, you know, the, the specific sizes that you may need. Yes. That's coming from a whole host of people who are, who are also donating their time as well. Tell me a little bit about the folks. Absolutely. We work with Union 705 um, out of Burbank, and these are people that this is their livelihood, this is what they do every day, and they gift their time to come in and volunteer to alter the dresses, the hems for the boys, the cuffs for the boys. They will often put on straps um, for the girls, but again, it's them giving of their time and giving of their talents to make sure that all of the youth that sometimes don't have that sense of normalcy, for lack of a better word, that they come and they feel loved and included um, with something that's such a big special process. Do you have a lot more kids since, you know, we're talking COVID, um, which is still a thing. Um, we, were, we were shut down for a couple of years. 
Mm-hmm. But things are are getting back to you know to where they were. Are you seeing more kids in need because of that? We're not seeing more kids um, in need. You know, the need number hasn't changed much. Um, we find that there are more people reaching out to us from f- smaller um, group homes and from smaller facility placements um, that have never heard of us before. Um, so we're always trying to actively get the word out um, that. We chances are, no matter who you are or where you come from, if you want to be there, we will absolutely say yes. Sibony Sneer, I feel like I owe you a corsage. Oh, <laughs> so sweet. <laughs> for all the work that you do. Sibony Sneer, thanks so much for, for telling us all about the goings on at Glamour Gowns Suit Up. If you'd like more information about Glamour Gowns, head on over to our website, kcrw.com slash GLA. Sibony, thanks. Thank you so much. Thank you, KCRW, for all of your support. And thank you for coming to our dance today. I'm sorry. That's going to do it for us today. Tomorrow, there's money in the Federal Inflation Reduction Act for carbon-reducing stuff like electric vehicles and heat pumps. Now, with gas and natural gas prices pretty high, how can it help you? That's tomorrow on GLA. Share your thoughts, your story idea, your love of L.A., your tolerance of this city, this sour fair city. We hope that's not the case, that you have a dislike of it. Just go to KCRW.com slash GLA. Juliana Mayo, Nihar Patel, Phil Richards, Katie Gilchrist, Amy Ta, Carlos Ramirez, Michael Stark, and Christian Bordall all had hands on tonight's episode. I'm Steve Chiatekas. Thank you for your ears. Have a great night.